You're listening to Fighting Terror, a podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Creighton, Senior Europe Advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project and former Europe Minister. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter-Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorists and extremist groups globally. Hello and welcome. So for today's podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Nick Robbins Early, who is a journalist based in New York. Nick is the senior editor for Digital Culture News at Insider, where he covers disinformation, extremism and the future of the Internet. In today's podcast, we're going to focus on the year-long investigation of death weapons by a group of international reporters. Uh, Nick is one of those. Looking forward to an interesting discussion about this investigation, which reveals internal details of how this network of young neo-Nazis is setting up cells across Europe and the United States to carry out armed attacks. Nick, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Really looking forward to this conversation. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, so, Nick, maybe if you could kick off by just giving us a little bit of a sense of how this investigation came about. Um, you know, what drew your attention to the topic? Uh, what prompted you and your colleagues to start looking into this uh, teenage network? Absolutely. Well, you know, some of the people involved in the project, uh, such as myself, have been reporting on extremism for a number of years and have been kind of keeping uh, an eye on different movements within far right extremism and, and other forms of extremism as well. And uh, with this kind of particular subset of far right extremism, which um, you know is generally referred to as militant accelerationism, we started looking into just the sort of networks and groups and chat rooms and discussions going on online between a number of these groups within this subset of the far-right extremist movement. And colleagues in uh, Germany, uh, Christina Braus and Alex Neighbor, who were uh, very central and, and leaders on this project, had gained access to a large amount of internal discussions and chats and you know various propaganda materials that were being shared in different groups within this network and so they actually approached me early on in the, this project and i think realizing that this was such an international you know connective uh, network of, of various far right groups uh, they thought that it would be an interesting you know opportunity for collaboration between newsrooms to investigate this not only in the you know german side of of things uh, where some of these individuals were based but also looking at other parts of europe north america um you know the connections between americans who were involved in these groups and uh you know, Europeans and, and Germans and Estonians and, and everything, you know, in between uh, who are also part of these networks. So that's sort of how this you know, um, emerged. Uh, I was I was brought on sort of midway through this investigation uh, once I believe, you know, the the scope of it had become clear to uh, to our German colleagues. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. And I suppose we've seen these trends of the internationalization of um, extremism and greater coordination uh, through through the Internet and different platforms, uh, especially in the last um, 
seven or eight years. So I suppose maybe if you could give us a little summary, uh, I know there's a lot in this and from the reporting that I've read already, uh, but maybe a bit of a summary of what what the investigation entailed. I, I don't want you to give away your, your, your secret methodologies, but, but what you can share with us in terms of how you went about it and then, you know, the, the key kind of results or, or what, what you revealed. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, to kind of give a, a overview of things, you know, this joint investigation gained access to around two dozen internal chat groups as part of a broader network of neo-Nazi accelerationists. Uh, those comprised around 98,000 messages from 900 different users that included photos, it included videos, it included texts and voice messages being sent between these different groups. Uh, some of these groups included sort of offshoots or uh, groups that might have been inspired by earlier, uh, maybe a little more known extremist groups such as Adam Waffen. Uh, they included Feuerkrieg Division or the Fire War Division, Totenwaffen, which was the Death Weapons uh, Division or death weapons group. And, you know, a lot of these groups kind of emerged from uh, a neo-Nazi website called Iron March, which went offline in 2017, but which was kind of notorious for helping a number of different international groups forge uh, connections and spread this sort of propaganda, specifically accelerationist propaganda, which is part of the extremist ideology that Taking direct violent action will help inspire kind of a collapse of society in which a fascist far right white ethno state will rise from the ashes. That is sort of the central belief of a lot of these groups and what they are uh, spreading. And so, you know, once we gained access to those groups, we began monitoring them. We began looking into the individuals who were behind them. We began kind of doing deep dives into what uh, was actually going on within these networks. And we were able to, you know, identify some of the people involved. The, you know, colleagues at uh, VELT um, were able to identify the leader or de facto leader of death weapons and would eventually, you know, um, actually go to his house in um, an apartment complex uh, in Germany and, uh, and kind of confront him with this evidence. Uh, it turns out that he was a you know a, a teenage extremist who is now uh, under investigation from German authorities and was uh, and was actually kind of uh, arrested during the course of this investigation. So you know that is is the general scope of things that, that we found and uh, and what kind of work that we were we were doing over the past uh, you know months. Just a, a side question on that. I mean, that that individual, the sort of de facto leader of Death Weapons, was was his arrest in any way prompted by your uh, broader investigation, or was the police investigation separate? Uh, I think that my German colleagues might be able to handle uh, okay about that a little more uh, okay. in depth yeah. since um, yeah. since they were as kind of the point on that. But yeah, uh, fair enough. They. Um, they certainly coincide with stuff. Uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense. I presume um, we know, of course, that intelligence and law enforcement agencies across not just Europe, but across the globe are, are largely um, attempting to monitor all of these groups. So it's, it comes as no surprise. Speaking of which, I mean, were there specific... I mean, you've, you've been reporting on and um, following and investigating uh, extremist groups for for a very long time. It's a really 
core focus of, of your, your journalism. Um, and I suppose one question is whether there was anything in this that was really shocking to you or that stood out um, from, you know, previous reporting or investigative journalism that you've conducted. Yeah, I, th- I think that there were a couple of things that were certainly unique to this and that stood out. You know, uh, I have been, you know, in various kind of situations where I've monitored what's going on in um, extremist chat rooms for years now, Um, you know, going back into kind of looking at ISIS groups on Telegram and looking through, you know, Islamist propaganda and um, uh, reading magazines like Dabiq and, and things like that all the way through kind of monitoring, you know, far right groups on Facebook and far right groups on various platforms uh, over the past few years and seeing how these have evolved. I think that something that stuck out with me in this investigation was obviously, I think the age of the people involved or the the apparent age of people involved was something that was certainly notable where this was just sort of like a younger generation of extremists. And something that came out of that was that there was a sort of digital fluency that I had not seen in other groups where even as, um, you know, extremists that I had monitored before became aware of the risks of deplatforming or the risks of sort of operational security and, and trying to defend against, um, you know, uh, threats to their ability to communicate and organize. I think with this, because I mean, maybe because we were looking at people who tended to be part of the younger generation, there was just such an ease and sort of, um, uh, fluency and, uh, you know, sense of being digital natives to these groups where, you know, people would pop up on discords and then they would shut down a discord and then they would switch to telegram and then they would shut down that telegram. Like they were communicating in ways that I think were much more inherent to the ways that young people in general communicate and organize through uh, digital platforms and communicative um, means rather than sort of older generations, maybe that I had looked at, which they were certainly eager to use these platforms, but there was a little bit of a, a adjustment or struggle or sort of lack of awareness of, of what these platforms could actually do for them. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. This is, this is so natural, I suppose, for that generation. I mean, it's literally what they've grown up with. It's how they communicate in, in all respects. An interesting uh, feature that, that I, I saw in some of the reporting is the mention of James Mason, the ideologue who's well known in the United States and um, who seems to have inspired or, or certainly be referenced in some of this. Could you maybe explain, explain that link a little bit for us um, and, and how, how he's connected to, to this network? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, Mason was for ages kind of a fringe figure within the U.S. far right. You know, he is he is currently, you know, living in the last reporting was that he was living in government assisted housing in Denver, Colorado. You know, he has kind of been a very ancillary figure to the far right movement for decades. But in past years, he's had this really big resurgence among this younger generation of extremists who have looked at some of his work, who've looked at his videos, who've looked at the you know propaganda output that he's put online, and they've reinvigorated him within this movement. And they focused on, you know, his works like Siege, the um, sort of manifesto that he wrote, and then eventually turned into a book in the early 90s, which was a core tenet of this sort of decentralized militant accelerationist uh, worldview. 
And, you know, he has become this sort of like, I don't know, godfather to this younger generation of extremism. And he's aware of this, you know, he's, he's um, very attuned to this. He has given Q and A's in which he discusses kind of his worldview and, and gives advice to uh, other extremists who appear to be, you know, much younger, ask him questions. He is, you know, um, very much kind of newly involved with this latest kind of twist in in the um, far-right extremist movement within the U.S. and within Europe. You know, I think that for maybe this younger generation of extremists, they've been looking for a kind of figure to rally around or a ideologue that they can sort of claim as their own. And Mason has kind of turned into that for a lot of people. So yeah, that's, that's kind of his role within this. Um, he's not leading these groups. He's not organizing these groups necessarily himself, but he's certainly become this sort of, uh, you know, almost paternal figure to, uh, to this newer generation. It's, it's interesting. Um, that, there is that sort of generational divide between him and uh, and then this young crop of extremists who are clutching onto his particular brand of ideology. I, a question, I suppose, on the, I mean, obviously you're talking about a really, I mean, some of these kids are really, really young when they um, start to become radicalized, like 11, 12 years of age. Um, even the, the sort of leadership uh, within this group appears to be, some of them are 15. Uh, so it, it's, it's, it's quite remarkable. I suppose a couple of things, a couple of questions arise from that. I mean, one is, I mean, you know, are these are these simply undesirable views as opposed to, you know, a potent real life terrorist threat? In other words, how, you know, how do you think these extremists online activity and definitely unsavory views, which um, which they are um, propagating and following, you know, how do they connect to their offline actions, you know, and in terms of, you know, the risk, the, the, the genuine risk of physical attack, terrorist threat, etc. Yeah, I think it's a really important question because as you say, you know, we are dealing oftentimes with people who are very young and we are dealing with people who are, you know, in positions where it's uh, sometimes unclear whether they will have the capability to carry out, um, you know, actual offline action. But I think that it's also a, a little bit, um, it can be somewhat deceptive in the sense that because a lot of these people are so young, I think the tendency can be to say, oh, well, you know, this is um, a bit of kind of play for them. This is dress up. This is kind of an online sort of throwing on uh, different identities and seeing what sticks and, and you know, almost a, a sort of like, you know, Nazi cosplay in some in some senses. and. You know, I don't think that that is always untrue. I think that there's certain, you know, individuals who may just dabble in extremism as something because it seems forbidden or edgy or something and then drift out. Uh, but I think that what we saw in these groups and what we've seen in the militant accelerationist movement overall is that we actually do, despite the age of a lot of these people, have to take these threats very seriously because they have resulted in a lot of offline action. Uh, you know, there have been numerous murders linked to militant accelerationist groups. There have been mass shootings and there have been, you know, um, plots to commit uh, mass violence that have emerged from people within these accelerationist movements. And, you know, uh, oftentimes this is when people are a little bit older than, say, 
you know, 13 years old, which is the age of one of the, you know, leaders of, um, of one of these groups. Mm. And so it, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a mix. I think that we do absolutely have to take into account in many ways, the age of a lot of these uh, younger generation of extremists and the people within these groups. But that does not necessarily discount that these are real threats that have, you know, we have seen over the years have either inspired or, you know, directly resulted in very horrific acts of, of mass violence. So it's uh, it's something that is a very kind of interesting question that I don't think is, you know, fully settled, but it's something that we shouldn't dismiss out of hand because of the age of some of the people involved that their actions don't have uh, real intent behind them. We might get into the profile of, of some of those children who are who are involved in terms of the the investigation into this terrorist network, death weapons. Did were there specific examples of any plots for for physical violence or attacks um, in this case, or was there sort of anything um, concrete that you identified or that your colleagues identified in in the case of the, the European part of the network that sort of gave rise to a, a real immediate threat concern? I think that you know there was some people because these messages go back uh, for some time. There are some people who have been connected with uh, these groups who have been, you know, uh, arrested by authorities for planning such attacks. Um, there was somebody in Las Vegas who had planned a attack on or discussed planning attacks on various organizations or venues, uh, including a synagogue, including uh, a bar, which LGBTQ people frequent, um, specifically with um, the death weapons group, the leader uh, who um, colleagues at Belt identified he had been creating makeshift um, bombs and testing them and videotaping himself conducting you know explosive tests and he had discussed in groups you know potentially attacking uh, various rallies or uh, you know anti-fascist um, organizations or essentially just kind of um, anything associated with uh, with the state he discussed um, potentially bombing an Angela Merkel rally at one point. So these are not necessarily plans that have concrete. I mean, it, it is tough to say, but it is it is tough to say how far along these plans are and where you go from discussion to offline action. I think that that's just in general with extremism, something that is a, a very kind of like tricky um, inflection point to pinpoint, mm -hmm. but uh, certainly, you know, the creation of weapons, the sharing of information on how to build 3D weaponry, you know, these are um, things that were very tangible that were in this material that, mm -hmm. uh, that I think goes beyond just sort of the vague discussion of violence or the vague kind of fantastical, you know, kind of like expression of extremist ideology. I think that when you start making weapons, when you start testing bombs, it, it begins to be something that is um, certainly, you know, escalated beyond um, just sort of like sharing uh, extremist ideology through, you know, memes and, and propaganda and things like that. Mm -hmm. There's quite a bit of evidence to suggest that uh, a lot of the children who are uh, vulnerable to um, radicalization of this nature, you know, many of them are fantasists, um, as you've alluded to. Um, more of them have significant learning uh, difficulties um, and disabilities. Just as from your, from from observing it so closely, how how do you think law enforcement or authorities should 
deal with those children. I mean, they're they're a little bit outside of the scope of your normal anti-terror legislation. So, you know, do you, do you have thoughts on that in terms of what's the best approach to handle kids of that age who've gotten mixed up in this stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think that in general, you know, I have some thoughts because it is certainly very prevalent. Like you see uh, a number of uh, attackers from far right extremist ideologies, um, you know, having potential learning disabilities. Uh, Alec Manassian, the incel van attacker in uh, Canada, for instance, comes to mind where, you know, he was convicted and and pled guilty uh, to killing numerous people. And it was established during that court case that he was on the autism spectrum. And that was a consideration in, in, I believe, his sentencing. You know, I think that when looking at these groups, especially when it is children and especially when it is, you know, people who may have learning disabilities, these are really big considerations that law enforcement should take into mind. You know, I think that kind of the way in which law enforcement sometimes handles terrorist investigations or terrorist activity is to sort of paint everything with the same brush and to take extremely punitive action and to often, you know, use undercover agents to, you know, this is the very fraught thing within extremism, within counter extremism is, you know, will somebody have the capability to take these actions themselves? Or is this something that is, you know, potentially falling into the realm of entrapment from law enforcement? I think that these are all huge considerations, especially when it's children. I also think that when we're talking about far-right extremism and when we're talking about kind of these considerations with far-right extremism, we should acknowledge that like these were conversations that really did not happen with Islamist extremism for many years and that we should, whatever we decide to do in terms of law enforcement's actions in approaching this, have this as a thing that, you know, is for extremism of all stripes and especially for non-white extremists. Uh, That being said, I think that law enforcement does need to investigate these communities. They cannot write off people as not a threat because they're young or because they have potential learning disabilities. But I think that this has to be part of a broader societal structural change in which we address these at multiple levels, whether it is, you know, uh, providing education, whether it is providing social services, whether it is providing really kind of like any sort of support for de-radicalization of individuals, especially children who may become involved in this. That seems to be something that might be more beneficial than simply kind of throwing a lot of punitive law enforcement actions against um, these groups just because, you know, ultimately, even if you were to kind of find and and arrest and and kind of imprison or penalize all, all of these, uh, you know, people involved in these groups, what you would end up having is probably a lot of people who are maybe not going to take action. They might be in vulnerable positions themselves. They might be children. They might have learning disabilities. Taking a sort of like purely punitive, aggressive, draconian approach to this does not seem like the way to handle this movement at the moment. Mm -hmm. I suppose globally, we're seeing a greater emphasis on prevention and on de-radicalization and those kind of multi-layered interventions that do involve law enforcement, but they also invo- involve educators, involve social services and, and so on. So I think the trend is moving in that direction. But yeah, it's a, obviously there are huge resources required, which uh, policymakers are not always um, in, in, willing to, to commit. In terms of the um, you observed with um, 
with law enforcement and how they handle this, uh, did you notice differences um, in the different jurisdictions that you were covering? Did you see a different approach between you know certain states in the United States or uh, between the US and certain European countries, or was it fairly generic? I think there's definitely differences. Part of those um, have a lot to do with uh, actually, especially between the US and um, and Europe and Canada. There are a lot of differences in kind of the avenues that law enforcement can pursue to um, either, you know, uh, arrest or pursue interventions against people who are involved in extremism uh, because the U.S. has, you know, pretty extensive uh, free speech, First Amendment laws. You cannot just sort of detain or, or arrest somebody for uh, involvement or discussion or kind of like connection to a domestic uh, extremist group in the way that you can in Europe or in Canada. You know, there are groups that are prohibited groups within those countries. And if you're involved in one of these, then, you know, police can take action or there can be sort of different interventions against your involvement in these groups. In the United States, what tends to happen is that they will monitor people very closely. Sometimes that the FBI will assign undercover agents to sort of speak with or, you know, potentially like help extremists, you know, with their plans to commit uh, various actions. And then once it is at a point where there is enough to charge somebody on, then they'll take action. Uh, this results within the United States in a pretty widely different um, outcome than in other countries where you have people who are often arrested on gun charges, on you know uh, acquisition of bomb making materials, on things that will violate federal laws. And so what ends up being, you know, really a extremism investigation where what you're kind of charging somebody with is, is you know, their affiliation or, um, or, or what you're pursuing somebody for is their affiliation or their involvement with an extremist group and the potential that they may commit mass violence. What ends up happening is that uh, it ends up being just sort of a, uh, a court case about their gun charge um, or a court case about, you know, uh, illegal sale of weapons. And that often results in, you know, um, like a short sentence of, uh, of, you know, anywhere between like a few months to a, a couple of years for um, things not necessarily short, but just a, a shorter sentence than would be for, you know, planning a mass bombing or, or something like that in another country. Uh, so, yeah, it becomes a different uh, landscape within the United States. And I think looking at the ways in which um, European and, and Canadian authorities pursued this, which is to carry out raids against, you know, suspected members of extremist groups to, you know, intervene once there is enough evidence that somebody is involved in one of these groups that just presents itself differently than within the States. Mm -hmm. We're getting we're getting uh, close to the end of our discussion, unfortunately. But I, I, I wanted to ask you for your thoughts, because I know obviously you 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 follow in in your in your uh, journalism um, a lot of tech issues, and of course, you know as you as you uh, observe um, these extremist groups, they're pretty much all online. So, what are your thoughts in terms of how the platforms are handling this and their role in all of this? I mean, obviously, there's been a big big drive 
in Europe to regulate tech companies, large and small, um, and to hold them, you know, more accountable and more responsible for the sort of videos that you that you mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, bomb making videos and this kind of thing, you know, really explicit, dangerous and elite illegal content. And there's been a lot of talk about this in the United States as well. There are countless hearings on Capitol Hill, etc. Do you think that that's a necessary step now? Um, and, you know, I suppose the, the age old, old question, should tech companies and social media platforms be doing more? Yeah, you know, I think that the questions of should tech have a large role in this and should there be regulation on tech? Uh, I think that to me is a little bit of an easier question, which is that absolutely tech companies should bear some of the responsibility for what has been kind of the acceleration and um, scalability of these extremist movements within their platforms in ways that were a lot more difficult before these platforms existed. I think that once you get into kind of what is the most effective ways of regulation, what are the most effective ways in which tech platforms can stop um, various extremist movements from forming on their platform, uh, it gets a lot more difficult. And I think it gets a lot more difficult within uh, the U.S. context as well, where there is an incredible political divide over this type of regulation and that, Mm. you know, there are a lot of movements within the United States which have significant crossover to uh, a mainstream Republican network. And it is difficult when, you know, you have people within the Republican Party who are um, espousing QAnon beliefs or who are, you know, connected to far right groups like the Proud Boys. And that becomes a lot more politically fraught when you're asking tech platforms to take action because, you know, there will be political pushback from a right wing conservative movement that is oftentimes aligned with these extremist um, groups or movements. And that just becomes more difficult from a, you know, lawmaking perspective to get those to get those regulations through. I think in general, however, you know, as we've seen, there is this increased desire to make tech platforms more culpable and responsible for what's going on in terms of extremism on their platforms. And I think that that is a a totally valid and fair and worthwhile pursuit. And the reality is that when I've been looking at these networks and when we were doing this investigation, you know, these networks would not be able to exist without the tech platforms that currently enable them to operate. You know, it's a difficult trade-off in the sense that we want encrypted messaging, we want privacy, we want certain trade-offs in which we can communicate with each other without the constant oversight of a platform or a government. There are uh, numerous ways in which that is incredibly beneficial. But we also want to restrict the ability for terrorist groups, extremist groups to communicate without any oversight from platforms. So finding some sort of regulation and finding some sort of balance in between those two is obviously something that is like a massive conversation and is incredibly nuanced, but is something that I think is very worthwhile having because right now you have groups that are really having free reign over certain platforms and are abusing certain platforms or, you know, exploiting certain platforms to further their own extremist ends. And that's something that uh, should be a, a big priority for tech in general and certainly for, you know, social media platforms that have oftentimes in, in past years enabled this. And, you know, I think that uh, 
platforms are coming around to this. They are doing work on this, but it always seems like that there are a few steps behind the ball. Mm-hmm. And as new platforms emerge, looking at TikTok, for instance, you know, there are going to be massive questions around content moderation on that as the dominance of that platform emerges. And, you know, these are questions and these are considerations that platforms should be having from day one rather than playing catch up, which mm-hmm. is what they've been doing for years. Yeah. Yeah. It's very difficult. And I think you've, you've, in a way you've hit on the nub of the the challenge, which is protecting free speech, which, you know, that is a, an absolutely key priority. And uh, no doubt as a journalist, it's a, an even, even greater priority. Um, and balancing that with the need to, you know, I suppose prevent the proliferation of really lethal content on online and uh, that I think is is something that uh, policymakers certainly haven't managed to crack yet, but um, but we I guess live in hope that that may happen. Maybe a a, fin- a final point um, or a question, which is a slightly general one, but you know from the the investigation, which is, was obviously you know cross continental and extensive. Um, do you and your colleagues have? Any sort of high level views on, you know, what what the type of response you would like to see generally from policymakers and law enforcement agencies, you know, in response to uh, the findings um, and, uh, you know, what you have uncovered through this this um, investigation over the past year? Yeah, I, th- I think that in general, this investigation shows the internationalization of these networks and, you know, authorities and um, and policymakers are kind of having discussions internationally about this, but I think that really emphasizing the internationalized nature of extremism these days and that you cannot just look at it as a domestic issue. You cannot just look within your own borders. You very much have to kind of look at the ways that these information flows are occurring and that these extremist networks are forming transnationally is a is a huge takeaway, I believe, from this. And then I think also just looking at, you know, that sort of generational aspect where This is something that is being increasingly targeted towards younger generations, younger audiences on platforms that are not only social media platforms, but are on gaming platforms, are on messaging platforms, are directly designed to appeal to this sort of younger audience. And, you know, there are numerous implications from that. We need to look at this from a, you know, multi-tier, multifaceted approach that is not just from a law enforcement approach, but is from sort of a, you name it, educational, mental health, uh, social support. Every level of, uh, I think, society kind of needs to be involved in, you know, creating a a kind of like healthy, well-adjusted generation of people who are um, growing up online are often exposed to this content and can be oftentimes easily swayed into it. So, you know, uh, those are sort of the, you know, 30,000 foot takeaways from this, I guess you could say. That presents a lot of challenges, I I suspect, Um, but a a good, a good summary. Nick Robbins. Easier said than Well, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Nick Robbins early. I want to really thank you for taking the time to uh, talk to me today and share your insights from um, your investigation with colleagues uh, into the uh, Teenage Terrorist Network death weapons. So thank you for sharing your, uh, both your findings, but also your, some of your takeaways and, um, and analysis of that. And I look forward to speaking with you again in the future. So thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. It was great talking with you. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Please don't forget to like, comment on, and share this episode. You can find out more about Fighting Terror and the Counter-Extremism Project on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website. 